What is the spirit of Christmas? I did a Google search, which is always dangerous. But I did a Google search to see what would uh, result in searching for that question. I came across an article, this is one of the first entries, from a blog entitled Scientific American. And it sought to answer that question. And the response that they gave is exactly what you would expect from a blog entitled Scientific American. But I think it's reasonable to assume that this is the kind of thing that captures the sentiment of a majority of secular-leaning Americans these days. They wrote in the blog, and I quote, It's the most wonderful time of the year. Once we had our fill of turkey and welcomed the holiday season properly, we're constantly encouraged to get into the spirit of the season. This phrase is most heavily tied to Christmas in particular, but it would be hard to deny that similar themes aren't attached to other December holidays. In general, we're encouraged to be joyful, charitable, generous, kind, and forgiving, which are all behaviors that run counter to our inclined responses to the stresses caused by holiday shopping, holiday travel, and general holiday interactions. End quote. I think this description perfectly captures the experience of most people when it comes to the Christmas season. There is the expectation that it is the most wonderful time of the year, and there is accompanying pressure to make it the most wonderful time of the year. We are encouraged and do encourage others to get in the spirit of the season, We are particularly encouraged to be joyful, charitable, generous, kind, and forgiving. In the article, again, he said that those behaviors, quote, run counter to our inclined responses to the stresses caused by holiday shopping, travel, and general holiday interactions, and certainly that is true. We almost force ourselves into a frenzy around the Christmas holiday season and encourage those kinds of virtues, all while stressing out about plans, purchases, and parties. He argues further that our understanding of the Christmas spirit is generally influenced by tradition around this time of year. He says again, and I quote, taken together, the lessons from these examples pack a powerful punch. We have a moral watchman, the embodiment of good cheer, a gift giver, and symbols of safety and home. They provide strong guidelines on how to behave in a specific context, which is the case in the holiday season. We have been taught through these traditions what we should expect and how we should behave during this time of year in particular. Why this time of year? Undoubtedly, these principles should be present all year round. But the emphasis here is on connectivity with your neighbor and is probably tied to the natural rhythms of the seasons. In much of the northern hemisphere where these traditions have their roots, the end of the year is a period following the harvest. Our ancestors would have finally, would, would finally have time to visit with others and open their homes to guests. As it is the darkest time of year, we're psychologically looking to others for warmth and comfort. End quote. Well, the moral watchman, I suppose, would be the Santa Claus tradition. We know the song, right? He knows, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. To him, these traditions are upheld really for the purpose of comfort. We gather together with others and try to do good to others because, again, psychologically, we're looking to others for warmth and comfort. He concludes the article with these words. With the growing secularization of the holiday season, the Christmas spirit is something we should all be able to relate to because it speaks to the social rights and social obligations that we have to each other in order to maintain a civil society. End quote. In summary, the Christmas spirit, the joy, generosity, kindness, and charity toward others, this desire to be with others for warmth and comfort, this Christmas spirit, he says, is something that we can all relate to and presumably should all pursue because, again, it speaks to the social rights and social obligations that we have to each other in order to maintain a civil society. Is that the spirit of Christmas? Does it amount to forcing yourself to have good feelings and to do good towards others for the sake of a shared tradition and to maintain civility? Or else gathering together with others simply to find comfort for yourself, 
from them. Is that the spirit of Christmas? For the past few weeks leading up to this morning, we've been considering again the reality that Jesus is the gift of God. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. As with any gift upon opening it, you take it out, you examine it, you hold it up to the light, you see what it's made of, you consider how this gift will be of benefit to you. Well, again, Jesus is the gift of God to us. Here are some things that we've been considering over the past few weeks as we've thought about Jesus as the gift of God. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we saw that he is the eternal word of God made flesh. Truly God, he became truly man. He came both to redeem us and to reveal the Father to us. The text said his coming marked the offer of the new birth to those who believed in him. To those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, the text says. In John chapter 6, we consider that Jesus is the bread of life. Just as we need physical bread for our nourishment and to sustain our physical life, so we need the bread from heaven. Jesus, who sacrificed his life, gave his body to be broken, allowed his blood to be shed as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus offered himself as the bread of life. He said there, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. In John 10, we considered Jesus is the good shepherd. He's not like the worthless shepherds who run away from the sheep when there is danger. He is the good shepherd. He presented himself as a good shepherd to the people. He said again in the text, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. A couple of evenings ago, we consider John eight twelve, where Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. Just as the Shekinah glory led the people forth through Egypt, from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, so does Jesus lead people from the darkness of their hearts, from the darkness of sin, from the darkness of the effects of sin in the world. He leads them forth from that darkness to the light of life. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The gift of God, the gift of Jesus, is not simply the gift of a baby in a manger. It is not the gift of good feelings toward men, good feelings from the company of men. It is not the gift of a compulsion to give gifts to others or simply the feelings we get when we get gifts from others. The gift of God is Jesus, who is the giver of life to all. I think the author had one aspect of their assessment of the spirit of Christmas right. The spirit of Christmas does have to do to our, with our response to what is called the most wonderful time of the year. However, this season is not comprised of tradition and the need for civility alone. The Christmas season is about the advent of Christ. Therefore, the true spirit of Christmas, the spirit that responds to the advent of Christ, the coming of the gift of God, this spirit in the heart of man is a spirit who receives him for who he is. It is a spirit which receives him by faith as the eternal word of God made flesh. The bread of life come down from heaven. The good shepherd, the light of the world, the one sent from God to give life to the world. When we say that Jesus is the reason for the season, that is what we mean. Jesus doesn't need gifts from us. He doesn't need for us to give gifts to others. He doesn't need for us to decorate. He doesn't need for us to run around like chickens with our heads cut off, traveling all over the place. What he needs, yes, what he requires is faith, trust in him. I believe that truth is clearly communicated in Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in John 4. When Jesus met the woman at the well, when she encountered him, when he came to her, his charge to her was clear. I am the gift of God to you. Ask of me and I will give you the life of God. 
Trust in me. Believe in me. That ought to be our response to the coming of the gift of God, Jesus Christ. Well, John 4 will be our text for this morning. Turn there if you haven't. I'm going to read a section together, verses 1 through 43, to get the context, but we're only going to focus in on John 4.10. John chapter 4, I'll start at verse 1. We'll read through 43 for the context. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said to him, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, 
and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he departed for Galilee. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. We thank you that we can share in your word together this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. By way of background in the text, we see that Jesus is leaving Judea and heading to Galilee. The text notes that he left because the Pharisees took note of him, specifically that he, meaning his disciples, were baptizing more people than John the Baptist. In other words, there was a growing number of people beginning to follow Jesus. John the Baptist was already a problem for them. Now this Jesus character was coming on the scene, and he was starting to amass a following as well. So Jesus left the region to avoid conflict with them at that time and headed to Galilee. Much has been made and discussed as to whether or not Jesus actually had to pass through Samaria. The reality is that Jews typically had no dealings with Samaritans, as stated plainly in the text. The Samaritans as a people came about in Jewish history after the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria. The northern tribes were carried off into captivity. Foreigners were brought into the area and intermarried with the surviving Israelites. The ethnically mixed people group who resulted were eventually referred to as Samaritans. The Samaritans as a people then developed their own syncretistic religion, which was at its base still Jewish in nature but with a host of other elements mixed in as well they even built their own temple and adopted the Pentateuch as their Bible the Jews for their part because the Samaritans were not fully Jewish tended to separate from the Samaritans even to despise them so it is true that most Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans the reality is though for the purposes of travel the shortest distance between two points was usually preferred they didn't have cars right most of their travel was done on foot or in caravans. Judea was in the south and Galilee was in the north. Most Jewish travelers would have likely passed through Samaria as it was located between the northern route from Judea to Samaria. There may have been some who would have taken the longer route around to circumvent Samaria. But the reality is that often they would just pass right through Samaria and just avoid contact with the Samaritans when possible. So Jesus is headed from Judea to Galilee, passing through Samaria, and he stopped to rest at a well while his disciples went into town to purchase some food. It's at this time that we see Jesus seizes the opportunity to preach the good news to this woman who happened to come out at the exact moment that Jesus sat down at the well. Now again, it is my contention that the true spirit of Christmas is simply a spirit of faith and trust in Jesus. Trusting in him as the gift of God. In this text, we'll see four truths about the gift of God. The first is that the gift of God is the fulfillment of God's promise. The second, the gift of God is a gift to seek his people. The third, the gift of God is a gift we must respond to. And the fourth is that the gift of God is a gift of eternal life. Let's look at the first point. The gift of God is a gift in the fulfillment of God's promises. Look again at John chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The answer that Jesus gives here in verse 10 is a response to her prior question. How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? 
How can you ask me for a drink even though I'm a Samaritan and a woman and you're a Jew? How can you ask me? Why? It's not really an antagonistic question. It's really a legitimate surprise, legitimate question. Jesus' response here, you'll note, is not really an answer to that question. As we've seen Jesus do multiple times in the book of John, he really just redirects the issue and hones in on what's going on in our heart. He addresses the most important question at hand. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God. The expectation for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, was high in Jesus' day. Even the Samaritans, whose worship was decidedly different from the Jews, had an expectation and hope that God would someday send forth his Messiah. Again, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who was called to Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That was her testimony. One author said it this way. The hope of the Messiah lies at the heart of the Old Testament from the third chapter of Genesis to the third chapter of Malachi. The Hebrew scriptures repeatedly proclaim that the Savior is coming. In fact, all three parts of the Old Testament canon, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, make precise predictions about him and his ministry. As the generations of Israel became familiar with these passages, they took God's promises to heart, though they waited eagerly year after year for their coming Savior, their sense of expectation only increased as the centuries passed. Thus, by the time of Jesus' birth, anticipation regarding the Messiah had reached an all-time high, end quote. The Jews anticipated his coming and had all kinds of thoughts as to what his coming would mean and entail. But regardless of the particulars, the fact of the matter is that they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of God's promises from his word. You remember the response of Simeon when he saw Jesus and under the influence of the Holy Spirit said this in Luke chapter 2. It says there he came in the spirit in the temple. And when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 27 through 32. Also there in Luke, we read of Anna the prophetess. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She saw the day and she rejoiced. And of course, Mary's words as she reflected on the Lord's promise that the Messiah would come through her in Luke chapter 1. She said there, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So much is said about Mary. The Roman Catholic Church worships her and yet her words are not about her here, but her words are about the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. That's what was on her heart. Israel was waiting for the promised gift of the Messiah When Jesus came on the scene, likewise, when Jesus arrived on the scene at the well, he found a Samaritan woman whose thirst for the fulfillment of God's promises had yet to be quenched, was yet unquenched. Thus, he spoke to her again, if you knew the gift of God. And she expressed her desire, her expectation, the Messiah, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus affirmed for her. I who speak to you am he. Again, Jesus came as the gift of God. He is the Messiah, the one who the people of God had long awaited for, the one who would be king, the one who would rescue them from all things that oppress them. But Jesus as the gift of God is much more than just a Messiah for Israel. Because before Israel ever became a nation, God promised to send forth one from Israel who would be blessed so that he might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's Genesis 12. 
And even before that, again, right after Adam fell into sin, God promised that through the seed of a woman, one would come who would reverse the effects of the fall and conquer man's greatest enemy. That's Genesis 3.12. In the very beginning, from the very beginning, from the fall of man, God promised, I will make this right. And I will send one forth who will make it right. I remember having a conversation with a coworker in a prior job and we were talking about Christianity and he said one of the primary concerns that he has in thinking about Christianity is why would God allow evil to happen? If there is a God, why would he allow evil to happen? Why would he not fix the problem? In reality, the question should be why is there anything good in the world? See, we like, we, we don't like when bad things happen. We don't like when evil happens in the world, but the reason why we don't like it and the reason why we react so strongly to it is because we think we don't deserve it. But the reality is that we don't deserve anything good. And I've had many conversations with people about the faith and every single time that I've asked them or that I've posed what the word of God proposes or what the word of God states clearly about the nature of man that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God 10 times out of 10 every single person has agreed with that I think we understand that on some level people may in their mind conjure a reality where people are essentially good but I think we all understand on a deeper level that we're all not essentially good people when we look around at the world, there may be some people who are really far gone in our minds, right? But we all understand deep down inside that if there is a God, and this God is holy, and he is perfect, and he is righteous, and he is good, and he is commanded, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, we all understand that we all fall short of that. Because we all fall short of that, just as the breaking of civil law requires justice, the breaking of God's law requires justice. And the justice that God requires is our condemnation, our death. That is really the beauty of Christmas. The beauty of Christmas is not that God sent Jesus a gift to people who deserved it, but he sent Jesus a gift to people who don't deserve it to people who deserve something much worse. In spite of the fact that we don't deserve him, in order to address the problem of evil, both evil without and evil within us, God promised and sent forth Jesus to save and deliver. Again, I already mentioned John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came to deliver us from the darkness of our sin. The Christmas spirit, then, our response to Christmas has to be the response of one who sees the coming of Jesus not just as a good story, a heartwarming story, a story intended to inspire us to simply be giving to others, but rather our response to Christmas, to the coming of Jesus, to Christ, has to be the response of one who sees in Jesus the fulfillment of all of God's promises. His promises to save and deliver us from evil. That leads us to point number two. The gift of God is a gift to seek his people. The gift of God is a gift to seek his people. Again, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember again the question the Samaritan asks is how is it that you a Jew ask for me a drink a Samaritan woman? Why are you talking to me? Again Jesus says in response it's a good question. That's really a question for you. You O woman of Samaria should be asking who is this man who has chosen to speak to me? If someone asked you who is the greatest apostle what would you say? You might immediately think about Paul or Peter but in reality the greatest apostle is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says in John 17, 18, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world as he prays to the father. 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus was a man on mission. After leaving the Pharisees, who had and would reject him again, the text says he had to go through Samaria. Now, whether it's the straightest point from point A to point B or not is kind of irrelevant. He really didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone another way, but he had to go through Samaria. Remember John chapter 10, verse 16, the good shepherd passage. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So they will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, but he did have to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. He had to sit down on that well. He had to address that woman. Just a side note, in reading this event of Jesus' life, it occurred to me that sometimes we miss those teachable gospel moments because we are often too tired, perhaps too needy ourselves in our own minds, or just not thinking of others. Maybe we're just too concerned about what others will think if we share the gospel with them. Jesus could have had any of those excuses as he sat there on the well. Again, the text indicated that he sat down at the well because he was tired. The disciples had gone away to get food, so he hadn't eaten. He was hungry. And again, he's speaking, a Jewish rabbi is speaking to a woman of Samaria. So he could have been concerned about what other people thought. But he disregarded all of those excuses because he was a man on mission. Now, the way this is evidence of Jesus' humanity, right? We think of him as the unflappable God-man. He is God in the flesh. He is the eternal word of God. Nothing could shake him, right? Well, again, Jesus is the God-man. He was actually tired from the long journey. He was hungry. They went to get him food. He was thirsty. He did actually ask her for a drink of water, right? In spite of his human response to the weariness of his ministry, he remained on mission. In spite of the busyness of his ministry, he remained on mission. Again, he'll say later to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He says, I'm satisfied by doing what my father sent for me to do. And again, he'll remind them that the harvest, the fields are white for the harvest. And I think that's instructive for us as we consider the busyness of the season to make sure that we remain on mission. Well, Jesus was always on mission precisely because God was seeking his people. Years ago, there was a movement in theology called the seeker-sensitive movement. Generally, the idea of this seeker-sensitive movement was to tailor ministry, church ministry, and even the worship service to those who were seekers, meaning those who were seeking after God, though they were not yet believing one problem with that whole movement is the scripture is pretty clear is that there are none righteous. There are none who seek for God. That is not to say that people don't seek morality or that people don't seek a God after their liking or that people don't seek the kind of community and togetherness that comes from belonging to church. We see that all the time. And that mentality is not too different from what the writer of the article I referenced earlier said about those who for psychological benefits seek comfort and warmth from others. But there really are none who seek after the true and living God in all of his holiness and unrighteousness. God is the only real seeker. In fact, we cannot know him unless he makes himself known. That's precisely what Jesus does. Remember John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, the eternal word of God, became flesh in order to reveal the Father to those who would believe in him. He came to make him known to them. He came to make him known to them so that through him, men might become true worshipers of God. Again, in our passage in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. The father is seeking the implication of Jesus stating this to the Samaritan woman is that she too can know God as her father as she worships him in spirit and in truth. 
Those are the kinds of people that the Father is seeking. That is precisely why Jesus was there in Sychar, passing through Samaria, sitting at that well, while this particular woman came to draw, to draw water. Everything that Jesus did, he did in order to fulfill the mission that the Father had given him to save his people from their sins. And at this moment, that required him speaking to a woman in Samaria and declaring himself to be the long-awaited Messiah. And we know that through her testimony, the whole city came to know Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. The gift of God is a gift to seek his people. Jesus is the gift of God sent to seek and save the lost sheep, all of those who had gone astray. The spirit of Christmas, our response to Christmas and the coming of Jesus has to be the response of one who sees Jesus as God's desire to seek and save that which was lost. And that includes you and I. If you are one who have trusted in Christ today, that is so because the father sent his son into the world for you. He sought out you. He died for you. In John 6, we're told that Jesus, that the Father draws people to Jesus. Let me ask you, what greater gift is there than that? What greater show of affection? The God of the universe has chosen to set his affection on you. And he chose to make sure that you would come to know his son as the savior of the world. Out of all the people on God's earth, in the history of humanity, I can't even imagine what that number is. God has chosen to set his affection on you. And he sent someone into your life to proclaim the gospel to you. And there are people in the world in darkness right now without a hint of knowing who Jesus is. And they'll die in their sins. But God has made it possible for you to know him. What more do you need in life than that? What greater gift is there? If God has so done that for you, you make sure you tell someone else about it too. Again, the fields are white for the harvest, especially during this time of year. Don't be so caught up in the festivities or so worn out by the festivities that you miss the opportunity to tell someone about the gift of God this Christmas. If you've not yet trusted in Christ, know that again, God sent Jesus into the world, not so that we would have nativity scenes or songs that tug on our heartstrings about how difficult it was for Mary and Joseph to find room in the inn, but rather he sent Jesus into the world to seek and save that which was lost. And if you don't know him as Savior, then you are lost. And if you don't trust in him as Savior, then you will die in your sins. That leads us to our third point. The gift of God is a gift we must respond to. Again, John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you. By that statement, Jesus is making clear there's something that she does not have and cannot get on her own. Not only is it something she doesn't have and can't get on her own, it's something that only he can give. You would have asked him if you knew. How does he know that she doesn't have what he has to offer? As I mentioned earlier, he knows what's in our heart. He knows all about our life. After discussing the offer of living water, we'll get back to that in a second. She appears to want to have what he's offering, though it's unclear as to exactly what it is that he's offering. Verse 15 in our text, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She clearly doesn't understand what he's offering here. He's offering something spiritual. She's thinking only of the temporal need, the need for literal water to drink. Jesus says, your need is a lot deeper than that. Go call your husband. He doesn't do this to shame her. He does this to point out the fact that her need is much deeper than a need for a drink of physical water. People often get offended by the word of God. They're offended by the things that they hear in church. They're offended by what scripture teaches, by what pastors and preachers who preach what thus saith the Lord Contemporary opinion is that the Bible's teaching should be updated along with society. 
What is acceptable should be determined by the desires and sentiment of the world and not by the word of God. God doesn't work that way. He tells it like it is and doesn't change his standard of morality to suit the world. He doesn't do that in order to shame those who live contrary to the truth. He does that because his standard is right. When we come before the word of God, instead of looking for it to affirm us, we should come with hearts willing to bend to its will. His standard is the right standard. It's not about offending us. It is there to convict us, to remind us that we are living the way we are living is the problem, that the content and intent of our hearts is the problem, that the lust of our flesh is the problem. Our sin is the problem. God's standard is not the problem. Just like this woman, we often care more about our physical needs than we do our spiritual needs. Even the whole conversation around whether or not some churches would meet on the Lord's Day on account of Christmas is astounding to me. I mean, it's the Lord's Day, right? I mean, of all days, it's the Lord's Day. Why would we not meet on the Lord's Day? How could we not meet on the Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord's birth? During the Christmas holiday, our thoughts are often consumed with what gifts will I get? What gifts should I give? What decorations should I pick up? What should be on the menu for the gathering? What travel plan should we make? It is as the author I mentioned earlier, referenced earlier, we overwhelm ourselves with the stresses of the holiday shopping, travel, and interactions. And instead of being joyful and happy, instead we're irritated, frustrated, reminded of all the things and people we don't have or lost, and we end up broke or in debt. The reality is that our spiritual need outweighs our physical need precisely because our spiritual need is eternal. Yes, we need things like water and food today. Yes, we need those things to sustain us. Yes, we need homes with walls and heat when the temperature drops to zero outside or five or whatever it's been the past couple days. Yes, we need work in order to be able to provide those things for our families. Yes, we do have the ability to satisfy the desires of our flesh, whether it be food or otherwise. No, we do not need decorations. No, we don't need gifts. No, we don't need to get or give for it to be a celebration, a true celebration of Jesus' birth. All of those things are temporary. They are temporary and will never satisfy the greater need of our hearts. The woman of the well wasn't satisfied with five husbands. She has one more now that's not her husband. What she was searching for, she simply could not find on her own. What is it for you? What are you searching for in life? What are you pursuing and indulging in? What do you live for? Better health? We put a premium on health, so much so that a diagnosis, just a diagnosis of failing health, becomes for some a greater setback than the actual disease. Perhaps for you it is family, or at least the picture of the perfect family in your head. Maybe it's power or influence, material worth, wealth, which we all know is like a vapor, especially during years of high inflation. Maybe it's sexual pleasure, the entire pornography industry is proof that the eye is never satisfied with seeing nor the lust of the flesh with feeling what are you searching for in life what are you living for jesus has come as the gift of god above what he offers you cannot get on your own and the only way to respond to that offer is by faith trusting him again john 1:12 to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave John 6.33, the bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them. Jesus came to give. Again, back in our text, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you. Knowing and believing Jesus to be the gift of God should have prompted this woman to ask for her greater need to be satisfied, not just a need for physical water. Have you believed in him? Have you asked him? Have you acknowledged in humility that you've been pursuing those other lesser things all your life and ignoring the only thing that truly matters? Have you asked Jesus alone to give you that which will satisfy your soul? spirit of Christmas, our response to Christmas ought to be a response of faith. Faith in Jesus, again, as the one who alone can give you what will satisfy your soul. 
And that leads to our final point. The gift of God is a gift of eternal life. Again, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What Jesus offers is clearly not physical water. She has the ability to draw her own physical water. What he offers is spiritual water. It's living water. One author said this in Jeremiah 2.13, Jehovah calls himself the spring of living water. Psalm 36.9 was an often quoted passage It says, for with you is the fountain of life. Similarly, Isaiah 55, 1, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Jesus will say in verse 13 of our text, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the physical well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water, water that becomes in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life is indicative of the work of the Holy Spirit in man. Jesus is saying to her in different words than he did to Nicodemus just one chapter earlier, I will give to you the new birth through the Holy Spirit. He said this in so many different ways already that we've hinted to. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's what he gives. The bread of life is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How does Jesus give this living water, this new birth, this eternal life to those who trust in him? It is by virtue of his substitutionary death on the cross. Again, we deserve the judgment of God for the darkness that is in our hearts, for our sin, for falling short of his glory. But Jesus died for our sins. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I read Isaiah 53 earlier, the assurance of pardon. Jesus has become our substitute. He took our sin upon himself. He died in our place. God exchanged his righteousness for our sin. And because he did that, we are now forgiven. We who trust in him. And since we are forgiven, we are also given the life of Jesus. Jesus says to this woman who was cast out by society, rejected, probably scorned and ridiculed by society. That's why she went at a time when no one else was at the well, at least she thought. He says, yes, you have sin, but you can also be forgiven. You can be forgiven and you can have eternal life if you would come to me. Take me at my word. Trust me. I am the long awaited Messiah. I am the one you have been waiting for. Jesus is the gift of God. The spirit of Christmas, our reaction to Christmas, our response to the coming of Christ, the only right response is a response of faith. It is faith in Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. It is faith in Jesus as the one whom God has sent to seek and save what was lost. It is faith in Jesus as the one whom, to whom we must go to ask for that which we cannot get on our own. It is faith in Jesus as the one who alone can give us living water the gift of eternal life. One more thought this morning by way of application as we close. Christmas can be hard for some. It can be hard for some because we're so used to getting together with loved ones. We're used to the decorations, to the meals, the receiving and giving of gifts. We try to get into the spirit of the holiday by pursuing those things, but sometimes we fall short. There's certainly nothing wrong with getting together with loved ones, decorating, giving, and receiving gifts. We ought to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the reason for the season. But the bottom line is that if Jesus is the reason for the season, then our joy ought to be wrapped up in who he is, not in our circumstances. 
It ought to ebb and flow with our thoughts of his goodness, his glory, the treasure of who he is as the gift of God to us, not in our gains or our losses, not in our possessions or our health, not even in our family. Our joy ought to be in and about him. He is the gift of God to us, and that will never change no matter what else happens in this life. Those who are struggling with getting into the spirit of Christmas, for whatever reason, I would encourage you to labor to make him your vision during this season. And if you need help with that, ask. Ask your brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can encourage you. Jesus is the gift of God. And you can have the true spirit of Christmas as you have a right response to his coming. And the only right response to the coming of Jesus is faith. Trust in him today. If you have not, as I said before, trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. Turn to him today and say, Lord Jesus, I know that you came into the world not just to be a baby in a manger, but because you are God with us. And because you desire to meet our greatest need, the need for eternal life. Pray that to him today. Lord Jesus, I trust you as my good shepherd, as my savior. And those of you who know him, rest in him today. Rejoice in him today. And tell someone about him today. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true. Your word which indeed does sanctify us. Thank you for your love, which is poured out on us in the sending of Jesus Christ. First as a baby in a lowly manger in Bethlehem, but not only to remain a baby in Bethlehem, but to grow into a man a man who would live to do your will, whose food and drink was to do your will, a man who would pursue your will even unto death, death on a wretched cross, one who would allow his blood to be shed, his body to be broken for us, to find salvation, to be forgiven, to have in us a well springing up into eternal life. Thank you for Jesus. Let us continue to rejoice in him this day and always. In Christ's name, amen.